Clay, we've uh, made it to the end of yet another season of Deadwood. The second season we're done. We're about to talk to uh, talk about the episode called Boy the Earth Talks To. I hope you're ready for it because I'm really excited to get into this one. Well, my only reluctance, Wes, is that I have had such an onset of diarrhea. If the conversation is brief, I'm absolutely equal to the task. <laughs> Do you think both of those scenes had a character laugh in them? Were both of them breaks? Me and Amy were wondering about it. I think this. I think the uh, the the second one. I think that Walcott is not supposed to laugh, but he does in that scene. Oh, really? I don't know I about actually, Silas. I, I'm not sure if that's a scripted thing. I I like the second line more. The second line is amazing. He says, "Allow me a moment, silence, Mister Hurst, sir. I'm having a digestive crisis. It must focus on repressing its expression." <laughs> We all been there, EB. This is a yeah. It's a it's quite an EB episode. We actually had a stomach bug go through the house over here a week oh, ago, geez. and I had diarrhea for three days. And it was like oh, the, it was it's a weird worst. It was a weird stomach bug. Like I never, I ne- it never took me out of the action, but I just felt <laughs> I felt so ill for three days. And I never threw up or anything like that, but I just like my stomach was just. I didn't eat for three days, and my stomach was in knots. And it's just like Ugh. this is. So I related it's, to EB Farnham. It's been a while for a straight up stomach bug here. It's been a couple of years. Oh, okay, so good. Knocking on wood there. But, yeah. you know, the kids bring it with their dirty little hands and their dirty little yeah. fingers. But it's not fun. But I mean, normally the upside to the stomach stuff is that it goes away. Usually it's a day, right? You're like deathly ill for a day and then you get better after that. But mm-hmm. this one was unique. I don't know. I don't know. Felt terrible. I had to suppress. You get to the My favorite part is when you get to the point where you're just literally thinking, how can this keep happening? Right. Like what, what's is, left in what there? What is there left in there to <laughs> expunge? It's just the Pedialyte you've been drinking. Just the sweet, sweet Pedialyte. This is Boy the Earth Talks To, and we're going to break it down right after this. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty the episode is called boy the earth talks to it is episode 12 the final episode of the second season of deadwood directed by ed bianchi written by ted mann in this one boy the earth talks to woo has lee's henchman murdered hearst arrives in deadwood martha bullock agrees to stay and teach the camp's children al offers woo to hearst but hearst waves the offer aside Wu and Lee will fight for control of Chinatown. Farnham agrees to Hearst's offer of $100,000 for the hotel and a job as a manager. Jane is coerced into new clothes for Alma's wedding. Hearst confronts Walcott about the murdered whores and ends their association. Alan Silas work over the Yankton Agreement. Doherty, Adams, and Burns dress as Chinese laborers and massacre Lee and his men. Tolliver ridicules Andy Kramed for bringing the plague of religion into town. Kramed stabs Sai in the gut. Deadwood celebrates the wedding with singing and dancing. Al watches the celebration from the balcony of the gem. Standing below him in the thoroughfare, Wu cuts off his cue and declares Wu America. Walcott hangs himself. Alma exchanges a last glance with Bullock and rides off with her husband, Ellsworth. All right, another season in the can. We are here to talk about Boy the Earth's Talks To, which has a whole bunch of little hyphens in the in between the words. And so here's a, here's a I was typing up all the... Um, Show notes, Clay. What words are capitalized in a title like this? Do you capitalize the last word, the last word to in this one? Boy, the earth talks to. Uh, 
I would I would think so. You apparently do. I, I don't I don't know why though, because you don't capitalize the and I thought that you needed to be like a noun or a verb to be capitalized in the title, but I guess not. Maybe it's because you You wouldn't capitalize the? No. It's boy, lowercase the, then capital Earth, Capital oh, Talks, okay. and Capital I see Two. What you're saying. Yeah. Like a proper title, you know what I mean? Doesn't make any sense to me. Wait, did you say lowercase talks or capital talks? Capital talks. So okay, everything yeah, is capitalized okay. except for the, but I'm surprised that two is also capitalized. It just I think because strange. it would it would look insane if if it, <laughs> if, it, if it was not capitalized. That's fair. So this is Boy the Earth Talks to. Um, before I ask you your your sort of general opinions, this is um we talked about Farnham in the opening. This is a funny Farnham episode because I feel like I don't have any evidence that this was the case, but I feel like uh, David Milch was just think, thinking in this one, like, what can I get this guy to do in this episode <laughs> and how can I end the season? He starts off with this weird diarrhea subplot. Then he ha- he has like multiple scenes of that he does this very weird, high-pitched, isn't it time to start the ceremony thing when mm-hmm. he's looking out the that door. That was very strange. And then he then he does, he he pretends to perform cunnilingus on his new bag that's filled with money, which is mm-hmm. his final his final thing that we see him do. But it's just a weird EB episode because he's just being continually humiliated throughout the entire thing by both the characters and the writers. One more fucking day. That's all he had to control himself, and I could have put him in fucking business. Switch. Shut the fuck up, Wu. At least he has an excuse. He's a chink. Who knows what the tribal requirements are? Maybe you don't act for a week. Maybe they exclude you from fucking dominoes or the like. But you... Tipping our fucking business. I'm sorry, Al. You hold one chink off at gunpoint, bring him the fuck up here... I'm so fucking pleased I trusted you, Johnny, to go out and buy meat. Get out of my fucking way. Tell Hurst I want to see him. My only reluctance, Al, I've had such an onset of diarrhea. E.B. If the conversation's brief, I'm absolutely equal to the task. What shall I invoke? As your reason. How about the fucking truth? The chink that attacked his chink has been captured by my employee. If it would please Mr. Hurst, I'd like a word with him before I decide what to do with the chink in my custody. But you'd like it here. Don't you be setting fucking terms, E.B. He's got reason enough to want to look around. Fine, then. Yeah, but at the same time, though, he's not feeling it because he's made out with a hundred thousand so like you know he's he's, he's very happy at the end of the episode yeah um even when hearst is taking a hammer to the, his uh to his beloved hotel yep um but yeah i i mean i'm i'm surprised that he's not a bigger part I, I don't know if he he might would he might get annoying if they tried to do more with him but like they use him the perfect amount which which i know it's the perfect amount because i find myself thinking i wish they had more for him to do yeah, yeah. because he's just a plus every time he's on screen. <laughs> I think his delivery of the diarrhea, the first diarrhea line is is just hysterical. It just comes out of nowhere, and like the, the other characters <laughs> don't react to it. A uh, hundred thousand dollars is three million. It's slightly less than three million dollars today. So oh boy, it is a payday for E. B. Farnham. So this Which is makes a- it. Uh- that much more understandable when when Al re- uh, regrettably decides not to take the bribe. Yeah. 
Yeah. 50,000 doesn't, I mean, yes, that's right. Do you mean because it seems like a little bit of money, but it actually turns out to be, uh, it's quite yeah. a bit of money in that context yeah. there. Yeah. So what'd you think about Boy the Earth Talks to? I thought it was good. Um, I, I think it did a good job of tying stuff up while also kind of laying tracks for stuff that's going to happen in the future. Um, like, I, I don't know uh, the backstory to how the show was being handled at the time, but this almost feels like it could have been a series finale, mm-hmm. the way that it ends. Um, yeah, I, I, li- I liked... I, I was surprised that Hearst's arrival wasn't a bit more uh, grandiose, I guess. Yeah. Uh, he just sort of, like everybody else, just kind of shows up for the way that they had been talking about him. I was expecting, you know galactus to show up but yeah um <laughs> but it was uh yeah it was good i i, I enjoyed it I, I liked uh one of my favorite little details was when they were when during the um marriage scene um when they when they have their backs to the camera uh ellsworth is still futzing with the gloves which yes. i thought was a nice little touch yeah, his lavender gloves yeah yeah and I, you know <laughs> i think it's i think it's good because they don't there's so much going on in the season, but it doesn't feel like they've left anything kind of any real threads loose, and they've uh, they've kind of wrapped it all up by spending just as much time as, as you would need on stuff. Like there's nothing. It's it's oddly there's there's not a ton of cliff cliffhanger element to it or like it's not a traditional finale where it's like racing to a to a conclusion yeah the the, the big concluding scene is is just the is the, the, the marriage the wedding yeah um with a lot of point, do, doing another one of the godfather things of intercutting everything else that's going on yeah along with it. Yeah. yeah um to the point where i kind of felt like Psy getting stabbed was a little much. I don't know if they necessarily needed that, but I, I get why they did it. But Yep. There's actually a um there's actually a production reason for Psy being stabbed. Um so David Milch fucking hated the fact that Powers Booth didn't have a knife wound in his stomach. <laughs> the the producers and other actors were having a hard time with Powers Booth at this point and uh, he was proving to be difficult and so uh, the decision was made to basically end it this way so they could have, like, they'd be able to basically hold it in Powers Booth's face and say, like, if you'd like to come back, you can come back, but you have to behave. Otherwise, we're yeah. just going to say that you died during the, the break. <laughs> we so. did it to Ricky J. You don't think we can do it to you? <laughs> go, go sit the fuck down. So, yeah, I, I mean, apparently he was, the whole backstory of Booth is that apparently he was just like, you know, the show was in 2005, and he still mm-hmm. had a... Hollywood, I don't know if we talked about this before. According to the Deadwood Bible, he had a, still a old school Hollywood outlook, which is that TV was sort of beneath him as a tel- ah, as a film sure. actor. And he was apparently very difficult in scenes with people, uh, like a very competitive actor who, for such a 
uh, ensemble show was very like obsessed with whether or not he was coming out on top in in scenes and like his his performance Much like relative Tolliver himself. Basically, yeah. So it's like, it ties into your thing about Powers Booth. Cy Tolliver is just Powers Booth dressed up like he's wearing clothing from the eighteen seventies yeah. <laughs> and just allowed to walk around on on, on the uh, soundstage. But that's it. So they they basically did it. I think it fits storyline wise, but it, they did it as a way to like sort of see if they could rein in uh, his ego a little bit coming into the third season. He does return in the third season, so they they didn't have to do it. Yeah, this show continues to be one that I've I've never seen. I've never, I don't know if I've seen a show that has so blatantly had its behind the scenes stuff play out on screen the way this has. Yeah, and I mean I think that comes down to just the total control that Milch has over everything. Yeah, and I think that he um he he. he I think he just ta- he takes a lot of stuff that's like happening and mixes it into the storyline that he's doing. Like he sort of synthesizes mm-hmm. the stuff that's going on and makes it a part of. Um, in that way, his writing is sort of therapeutic for him. Like he he puts into the show what he's kind of thinking about or what's stressing him out. Because Kristen Bell was the other uh, earlier example of this of just being like being annoyed with her decision as an actress and a real person. He's just like, I'm going <laughs> to fucking kill this character off because this is annoying to me. Uh, yeah, it's a weird it's a weird kind of god power yes. to to play with where <laughs> I don't like you so I will kill you. Uh, is it's Even Milch. if you are a child, it's- I will kill you. <laughs> she, like yeah, god himself, at least I spare no one. <laughs> I mean, that's you you imagine Milch is like Cy Tolliver sort of pretending to talk to god, right? As all this is yes. going on when when he's talking to Hurst. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Hurst is a good place to start here i suppose i will say the the only thing that i was a little bit um again i i feel like this is knowing how this show was created and how like the writing process worked it doesn't really surprise me that much but uh just watching it it feels like the the rivalry with the rivalry between Wu and lee feels like one of those things where you're like eh, I, I don't know i don't know just let's just end this like you know what like, you oh, never sure. really it never really got off the ground. Nothing really happened with it. Um, so it was when it ended. It just felt like another one of those things, like the Isrenhausen thing, where it's like, yeah, we're just we don't really know what to do with this. So let's just move on. Although the plot thread everyone was waiting for, Al gives to Alma the bribe he took from Miss Isrenhausen as a wedding gift. Oh, is that what that was? Yeah, when he throws the oh. envelope down. Yeah. So I was expecting it to be some like letter saying i killed your husband (laughs) (laughs) jk (laughs) no it's the bribe from mrs Ah, yeah uh, that's nice i mean the woo and that stuff really just serves as like a uh kind of like an ancillary thing to hearst arriving and sure uh, like obviously woo can't speak a lot of english so there's not you're not going to have milchian dialogue scenes between the two of them because it's not really something that they can do uh, for those two characters, yeah, but they certainly don't. They don't. Uh, they get a lot more screen time than they actually end up feeling like they need to, if that makes sense. And I wouldn't even say they get a lot of screen time, but they're just there as a kind of reminder that this is mm-hmm. what's what's happening. Uh, although I think that it does tie into Hearst uh, with what happens in the episode because you were. Um, I think Hearst is a good place to start. As and he finally shows sure. up in this one. He shows up in the final episode of the second season. You had mentioned uh, he arrives to know fanfare, uh, mm-hmm. which he doesn't. He got to get out of his carriage and he stretches his back. His back is sore from riding uh, on the, the wagon the whole way over there. 
Um, Hearst is one of my favorite antagonists in any medium. Uh, you get a little taste of him here. Uh, we're going to get much more, and so maybe I'll probably save a lot about what I want to talk about with him. But I think that he is... Um, what I like about his appearance in this episode is that the first time I watched the show, I, I really remembered thinking, oh, Hearst is kind of a nice guy for the first <laughs> little bit. Like, he seems kind of, like, pleasant because... They set him up in such a way that all of the bad news that is told to him, he reacts kind of shocked and startled and upset that it has happened. So, for instance, like uh, learning that Lee has been burning the prostitutes, is he gets like upset by it because he asks Swinging mm-hmm. like what bodies who's burning. And the other thing is learning from Walcott what has happened with killing the whores, and he reacts badly to that. Ultimately... It's just the show kind of playing with you because it's revealed that the only reason he really cares is because he thinks these things are going to impact his ability to secure the color, as he calls it. Mm-hmm. So it's completely selfish why he's acting that way. But I do remember feeling tricked as to like, oh, Hearst isn't as bad a guy as everyone's been making it out to be, which is kind of interesting. But it's not the case because I, I think by the end of it, he's more revealed to be like what his true character is when he has this conversation with Tolliver and when he buys the hotel and things like that. But uh, what are your first impressions of Mr. Hurst? <clears throat> yeah, I um, I I thought he pretty immediately presents himself as someone who's on a completely different level from everybody else in the town. Um, like he has a level of uh, <clears throat> excuse me, inflappability that's only being obscenely wealthy can buy you. Yes. Um he's confident. Yeah, he's very confident and and you know, the stuff that he's that he is told a lot of it he just sort of like I, I he brushes up like when when Cy tries to give him the 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 backwards eloquent uh blackmail speech, he just kind of like goes, "Ah. Okay." And then he just kind of walks it. Like uh, Tolliver's expecting this shit that works on everybody in this town to work on him and it doesn't work on yeah. him. Yeah. You know. Full and final payment, Mr. Tolliver, for what service you conceive you rendered me. The Lord himself would testify to me having served you, Mr. Hurst. <laughs> and uh, what should be my just reward? Is that the cocksucker addressing us from the fucking whirlwind? George Hurst, size, just reward. Every claim... He helped you by. He's in for 5%. Sigh. As I'll sometimes be busy elsewhere, take your own fucking precautions, you're fairly treated. Should George try to fuck you, Wolcott's letter gets broad circulation. Tell me what letter you mean. George asks, what letter do you refer to, Lord? That you, Sai, before you disposed of them whores, made that murdering geologist right once he told you George knew of his habits. Disturb you being in the public eye. Some don't mind. Fuck, some men like it. But I wonder if you're among them. Stop moving your hand, sir. I mean you no harm, but I can't speak for Captain Turner. Put your hand down, Sai. I hear you, Lord. 
press being sold out cunts hardly matters that a story's true. But one like this, that is, sporting a man like you, a fucked up geologist and whores dug up from shallow graves with their throats slit from ear to ear. The same to their poor privates. What's that, Lord? <laughs> Would you, Lord? Dirty-minded cocksucker. He says he'd found a story like that himself. Five percent. You're interesting too by one that controls his appetites. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the stuff with the hotel, um, I, I think it's, he, he establishes himself pretty quickly as someone who is just playing a different game than anybody who is in this town. Because, like, everybody in the town is... Even the, pe- the the people who are who consider themselves the most um, wizened to the game don't really have like a singular goal in mind. You yep. know, for as smart and as cunning as Al is, he's kind of all over the place as far as like what he wants because he's Al is concerned with the town. You know, so he's concerned with with all the strings, whereas Hurst is concerned with one string yep. and. All of the other strings, he couldn't care less about uh, what happens to them or if they, you know, exist, uh, as long as it doesn't impede his single string that he's he's interested in. Yeah, I'm sure there's a sweater metaphor in there somewhere, but <laughs> um, and so it's it, it's it's interesting to have have someone like that roll into town where it's, you know, it's it's like it's it's like when you have someone who's when you have like a, a small community that gets all wrapped up in in personal uh gossip and 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 the bubble of just being a small group of people and then you have someone from the outside come in and it it immediately becomes apparent how stupid all that shit is yep right that's kind of that's kind of the vibe he has come rolling into town i think yeah i like um i think those are all good accurate points about hearst i think that he is he's certainly He's certainly portrayed as a man who is used to getting what he wants and is not particularly concerned about things. Um, mm-hmm. He does that with his, his conversation with Tolliver. Um, he does it with Walcott. He is, as you're saying, like his his solution to problems, and even he vocalizes it to Al in that first scene where they talk in Al's room, is that like he's not, he has no loyalty to anything that will prevent him from being able to get more gold, which he which he right. calls the color, which I think is a nice callback to. Uh, the very first episode where Bullock says that people are going to hang under color of law, which is the show always sort of like abstracting that idea. And for Hearst, it's the abstraction of money and wealth and, mm-hmm. and the way that Seth was abstracting like perception of things. Uh, Hearst is – your fanfare thing is interesting because what's interesting to me about uh, Hearst is he does not – the way that they talked about him, right, as being this sort of like wealthy billionaire who's coming in, right? I sort of see your fanfare comment about that. Hearst does not look wealthy in the show, right? right like he yeah. doesn't he doesn't dress and he doesn't act wealthy. And he dresses like pretty much everyone else. And I'm assuming this, be, like his clothes look the same. I'm assuming he's not wearing like the finest clothing. Maybe I'm getting that wrong about the like the era of clothes that he's wearing. And this is supposed to be really expensive. But to me, Tolliver actually dresses more expensive than, than right. Hearst does. Yeah. And yeah. Hearst's interesting to me because he is, Milch had a description of him is that Hearst has like abstracted gold to the point where 
it's no longer a real thing to him. It's just an idea and a concept that he's pursuing. Mm-hmm. And he, what hers kind of reminds me of is, um, there's like this, uh, like the financial independence movement, which is like the fire movement to get financially independent and to retire early, which is that like if people who have high incomes save a tremendous amount of their income, like 70, 80, 90% of your gross, and you invest it and you do that for a couple decades, you're going to be able to retire early because you'll be able to live off your investment. Mm-hmm. And the problem with the movement is usually just that once you get into this mindset of just saving and saving and like gamifying and just like the money no longer means anything. It's just like the, the game of saving this abstract notion of getting points is something to you. Yeah, it's the uh, the Ebenezer Scrooge method of collecting wealth. Of collecting wealth, yeah, basically. And when you get to the point where you have to spend it, a lot of people struggle at that point because they've they've lived their whole life trying to get to that point without really figuring out what they're going to do once they get there. Mm-hmm. Hearst represents that to me. He's he's all consuming. He doesn't even care about what the wealth and what the money can do for him. It's more just the fact that he wants it, and he's yeah. He's like he's an action figure collector. Yeah, that he, he's he's running out of <laughs> shelf space, but he's he's doing it. He's he's he needs to get all of the Gundams that are in there. <laughs> <laughs> paint each one a different color I, but he's he stands in contrast to other villains who i feel like in other movies and shows when the rich guy shows up there's like a gratuitousness to his wealth and hearst, mm-hmm. hearst is not that way and i think that that's a really neat character point is that he is intentionally written as a way is that he's only obsessed with getting the thing not what the thing can really do for him and the things that it does for him are only done in service of getting more of the thing that he wants. Mm-hmm. And um I just think he's a great character. I like I like his scene where when the wedding is going on, uh he has bought the hotel and he stands up with that sledgehammer and just starts literally destroying everything that everyone else is building around him yeah. as he's knocking yeah. down the walls. Um and we'll get more into Hearst as time goes on, but th- those are the things that I find most interesting about him. And I think that he's um he's he's going to be a different villain from Walcott in that his conversations with people are much more antagonistic and threatening than Walcott's managed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a little bit more Walcott's flowery and interesting in how he talks, but there's something about the way that Hearst talks to people is, is neat to me and fascinating and it makes me enjoy him. Well, he's kind of the opposite of Walcott, right? Cause Walcott presents himself as being this, you know, finely dressed, finely mannered person who's secretly a psychopath and, Hearst is the opposite of that, who presents himself as a, a man of the, a man of minds. Yes, who is actually a obscenely wealthy psychopath. <laughs> yes, he at least um, Hearst admits in this one he prefers to go to wild. He doesn't like people. Is the implication? He mm-hmm. you said he has that line. Where he prefers to go to like wild places where the gold can be found. But if he has to go to somewhere where there are people, he would prefer not to upset anybody. Um, so he is a uh, a different kind of of psychopath, but. I do. I find his. Um, I think the idea of making him so singularly obsessed, and he's very theatrically obsessed. Like his the the metaphor of him tearing down the walls and sitting in this like shitty apartment that he's basically just blown the walls out of as his own base mm-hmm. is unique. And he's not staying in the hotel. He's not staying in the the fanciest room. He's not you know ordering Farnham around. Really, he just wants to be left alone, and he wants to have his own domain and his own dominion over everything. My question is unrelated to that specifically. Who is Garrett Dillahunt going to play next season? 
uh, he'll play. He'll become Captain Turner. <laughs> he'll, yeah. just, he'll play. Is he, is he playing Indian Chief or something? He is in the finale. Uh, is he really? He, he's in, or he's in the movie. He's in the movie. Oh, of course. All right, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's it about Hearst. Any particular Hearst scenes stick out to you? Is something that you um, you enjoyed? He has a bunch because he interacts with a lot of people in this one. I, I like that first scene with with Al. That whole sequence, um, <clears throat> even him, like everything, <laughs> everything from him coming into the bar and going up into the room was great. Like the way that I forget what Eb says when he's like, "I'll leave you to it then," and then they kind of walk away. It's like unless you. Unless Rather you I me. join yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> no one answers. And then Al, when they're going, go ahead. When he introduces Al, he's like, this is Al Swearingen. And Hurst just goes, yes, I see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they have that good bit too where I, I forget what the exact line is, but he asks Al, he's like, did you shoot this guy? And he's like, which one? It's <laughs> <laughs> like uh, the, uh, the animal is like, oh. Yeah. You're no, kill. No, no. Yeah. Um, that was really good. <clears throat> I like the bit where they're going up the stairs and, and his back hurts and Al I'm sure on purpose makes it a point to just like jog up the stairs yes. in front of him. <laughs> he runs ahead of him. Oh, the commiserates the whole, over his prostate. With he does, him too. yeah. Yep. But the whole scene, their first uh, uh, scene in, in the in the office was really good. I thought he's yeah. I think they do a great job of establishing him right away as you know, so, like a different. He's. You'd expect when, him when to I, kill Wu, wouldn't you? That's the that's. I think that's the initial surprise to me is that he. He does not kill Wu when he could yeah. have, you know. I think with these balcony doors open, you'd get a, a little cross draft in the summer. I do indeed. I've spent the last summers in Mexico. Oh, that fucking heat must be oppressive. Oh. Nevada's was drier, I'd expect. Have you been there? Mine further was Australia. Wasted two years that was. Yeah, come in. Here we are. This yellow monkey's woo. Older fella. Not often you can tell how old they are. Gonna turn a two for me. Woo has, and well liked enough among his own. His display against your chink was my first fucking inkling that he's irrational. Mr. Lee, the man he tried to kill, has worked well for me in several camps. And God bless Lee, and up with fucking Wu's head. You got your finger on the cause of it, too. Your chink being forward-looking. Set the bodies ablaze now with the day's trade. This one being longer in the tooth. Set what bodies ablaze? Custom holds stronger to what passes for his mind. What bodies, Mr. Swearingen? The whores for your workers. Not only does burning the corpses save cargo space far as... The transporting of their bones back to the homeland, which, as I gather, they hold as their big fucking chance of the afterlife. What a tremendous tactic, terrifying the unburned year. Do you know prospecting, Mr. Swearingen? Fucking nothing, Helen. And the securing of the color once found? Not a fucking thing. All I really care about. No, I fucking hope so. I'd hate to think you're this good at something that's only a fucking hobby. Most often, my finds are in wild places, which I prefer. When that is not so, I want friendly relations with my predecessors so that I can secure the color undistracted. When I um when I said, you know, there's no bombast or, or nothing big about his arrival, I wasn't I, I, I actually meant like from a filmmaking standpoint oh, more sure. than yeah. like what he looks like and you know, it's I wasn't expecting uh the Prince Ali sequence from Aladdin or anything. Mm-hmm. But I I, I, I just like <laughs> He's the way that he enters the town is is very, for lack of a better term, boring. Like they don't do any sort of 
Um, Could just be a random guy, the way that they shoot yes. it. Yeah. yeah, they don't do any like dramatic camera movements or anything to like reveal him or anything like that. Or there's no uh, tension to his arrival. He's just like, boom, first thing. It's him getting out of the thing. And, you know, he just looks like a guy. Um, which I think is probably on purpose. I mean, it was definitely on purpose. But like it, there's the way that they present him as a character, it seems that it, that it is definitely meant for him to have this outward facing um man man of the man of the wilderness or man, uh, kind of thing that that is uh contrasting with his his uh the actual uh richness of him of who he is yeah yeah i i because I, I i wouldn't say i would expect like a prince ali entrance but it is he really doesn't come with anybody besides captain turner right. who's his, his bodyguard right. uh in this but it's like there's you know, when the army showed up, you you're kind of the way that they talk about Hearst. You're kind of expecting him to come with like an army of Pinkertons or something into sure. it. But his, you know, I, I think it's an intentional choice, just in the fact that Hearst's confidence is off the charts. Really, like he's to me, Hearst is a, a Hearst is kind of an interesting foil that sits somewhere in this trifecta of Tolliver, Swearingen, and Hearst. They're like three mm-hmm. semi different versions of the same character. And I thought that, you know, in, th- in this episode, I just remembered Walcott's last line about Tolliver in the, the previous episode, which is that you can f- you're a desperate man, Tolliver, like you can feel things slipping away from you. And Sai is definitely feels like things are slipping away from him. So he's making this kind of desperate attempt to regain control of the situation. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's what we talked about earlier. Sai is incredibly insecure with himself, like in terms of his relationships and his business and the way that he presents himself. For Hearst is exactly the opposite, which is this quiet confidence type thing. And he's not as... Um, he, in, in relation to Swearingen, he kind of does the opposite of what Swearingen did to like someone like Persimmon Phil, which is that Swearingen in the first season used to let everyone do the talking until they hung themselves. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it's interesting. In that first conversation, Swearingen is doing all the talking, right? Like Hearst right, is very much right. the, the playing the I'm in control of this and I'll let you talk until you tell me something. So I, I think that they're all, they all circle each other as like variations of the same kind of character, but they all have different pluses and minuses compared to each other. Yeah, I think Al also is, is he's aware of what he's doing though because I mean, his whole thing an episode or two ago, whenever it was, was how to basically uh, present a certain um perception of himself to hearst that doesn't give away the whole game you know right yeah so i could see him <clears throat> over talking on purpose to kind of like i don't know maybe i'm thinking too too many too many layers of chess going on here but yeah well, he's, i mean he's trying to he certainly because tr- he's intent al is intentionally trying to give up woo so it's kind of a surprise to him that that backfires it's a pleasant mm-hmm. surprise but it is something that he was prepared to do um yeah they are <laughs> they are uh, al is in the l is in the midst of uh trying to pull everything together uh because i guess the other thing that's going on is that there's a lot of uh wedding and divorce symbolism in this one there's literally the wedding that's going on mm-hmm. but everything else is the signing of uh deadwood over to yankton which is all the jerry scenes 
This is my favorite Jerry episode, I think. I think he's very funny in this one. Yes. <laughs> he's so desperate the to close the deal. The next thing you hear will be your own voice. Get the fuck out. Get the fuck out. <laughs> Stoic composure. Yeah. <laughs> and when Al, Al calls him over and he like runs like a little child through the far, thoroughfare to get over to see what he's talking about. And there's a lot of good bits about Jerry has like no power uh, to push back on so he keeps saying like I won't sign this and Al just pushes the paper back to him and he mm-hmm. looks at it again and then signs it there's no uh, he has no ability but it is kind of um, another marriage symbolism about the, the town so, being absorbed that was the one thing I wasn't totally tracking where that ended up so can you explain to me what the where things are in that regard yeah so they've agreed to be annexed by the Dakota Territory, which is what Jerry is from. Okay. Uh, they've given up on the money because they don't want it to look like there's a bribe that's going on, but they've got the they've been accommodated in the other thing that they want to get, which is that they're going to be able to hold elections. And that's what that Al and um, Silas scene is about, where they're sort of negotiating that they someone who runs for an election in the area has to live there, and they can't just be these ringers who are brought in by Yankton. Right, right. So they're, they're, they're trying to become legitimate, and they feel that they put themselves in a good position through this power play with uh, Yankton where they've gotten what they want out of this. And now they're going to be able to sort of exploit the government coming in uh, uh, to take over the camp. Gotcha. I uh, I did think it was interesting. I mean, only having to live there for two weeks. That's yeah, not that really was short. much of a commitment. No, that's <laughs> if you... You'd have to be really under the gun to just get there and show up and say, I'm going to run for an election. I've been here for three days, and I think that I could be the mayor. I was, I was that's, surprised that's by what, that. That's what Dr. Oz did, basically, right? Yeah, in Pennsylvania, I think. Yeah. yeah. Do you even – I'm, I'm hazy because we have a, in our local election, the person that I vote in my district does not, um, doesn't live in the district, which we and Amy were surprised about. We, we thought mm. you had to, but I guess you don't have to. I don't know. It's all – it's all parlor games, smoke and mirrors, as they say. Yeah, no idea how that stuff works. Um, <laughs> uh, I just see the name. I just see the numbers in my bank account, how much they've added to it. I see the butterfly I, ballot, and I mistakenly vote for the wrong person, and I pass it in. I, fo- I fold it in half, and then I poke through it with a pencil. And wherever the holes end up, that's who I'm voting for. I always have the weird, the weird reaction that is um, obviously voting is important, but obviously your vote doesn't count really in that in the same way. Like there's no, you're never going to swing an election with your one vote. But it's always mm. funny to you go in and you're like, uh, democracy in action, and then you look at like the newspaper results the next morning, and, and, and your vote is you know thirty thousand votes in the wrong direction, and you're like, well, I tried, <laughs> I tried my best. Hey, well, it could have been twenty nine thousand. 999 <laughs> it's but you made a difference in that sense it's what Sai says all the newspaper men are all bought out cunts anyway so i can't trust yeah. what they're telling me uh yeah anything else about the uh the other the other marriages going on or this well there's the divor- the divorce of walcott and hearst i guess when you talk about that i love that scene between those two uh the mm-hmm. where her, where walcott fire is fired by hearst uh did you have any thoughts about that one i, I really I like that scene because when he was like, when were you going to tell me about this shit? He was like, well, I did have you write that letter that you chose not to ask what it was about. The Jefe de Policia. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of your fault. You should have. I 
As someone who works for people who just sign letters that they need to do, I completely understand what Hearst. Hearst just got that letter and he signed it and didn't read mm-hmm. what was actually going on. Uh, but yeah, we learned that the the episode of the title gets its name from that scene, which is that the Native Americans that Hearst interacted with at a previous gold find called him the boy that the Earth talks to. Is uh, there? I. <laughs> I I always find that stuff really funny because I can't imagine there being like a bigger um, ego stroke that in reality doesn't really mean anything than being a guy like Hearst who's like, you know, the Native Americans have a specific name for me. It's like, oh, yeah, what the fuck is it, big guy? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like it's it's one of those things where like a guy like Hearst would definitely be like this is a huge deal and and anybody else would be like yeah they have a words they get names for everybody <laughs> soar as high as an eagle what would walcott's indian name be uh boy, <laughs> boy who boy who incel who uh incel incel who needs his pants on something like that <laughs> do yeah. uh do uh I like the the symbolism of that scene. I like Walcott sort of asking. Um, he brings attention about like what the what the so the universe says to both of them. Um, Hearst calls it nonsense, but it has to do with uh, you know why 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 does Hearst think that the Earth talks to him? Hearst doesn't know. He doesn't ask why he's lucky. Um, well, Walcott is sort of like the Earth tells me that there is no sin, which is his justification for the things that he's done. Um, but it's another good scene between those two. I think that you uh, you you get in that scene the entire reason for why Walcott has been the way that he has been and why he kills himself at the end of the episode. Just because mm-hmm. without Hearst's protection, he really doesn't have anything uh, for him at that point. And so off he goes towards the very end. I don't I don't know if Walcott finished as strongly. Um, he might have had more to do if there was more Hearst scenes. But um, it's the end of an interesting character, at least with the end of Walcott. Yeah, he really went for it too. I feel like that was uh, one of those. <laughs> I felt like that was one of those hangings where anytime you hear about one of those in history, it's like, yeah, we really misjudged the distance, and his head came right off. <laughs> he does have a little bit of snap at the end, but that's what you yeah, want he, for a hanging. He fell a long. <laughs> like, there's a whole science built into it, right? Like, there's a certain distance, and like the knot has to be. Any yep. t- anytime I hear about like, yeah, you know, they they hanged the guy. Uh, but he they dropped him from too far a height and the net the knot was off and his head just like turned into jelly. <laughs> so it, so I'm I'm I feel like in in reality his it just would have been like the top of a dandelion flying off. Well, he <laughs> when you flick it with your thumb. Just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the uh, I mean he learned his lesson from Bullock in the first one, which when the guy was like, "That's not far enough to fall. I won't fucking die." Um, did. It, Walcott makes which, sure that yeah, he which, falls from a distance. Which, which of those hangings was worse? The one where Bullock has to like pull on the guy's pants to break his neck? <laughs> <laughs> that one's definitely worse. That that's got to be worse. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would rather fall from a great distance and break my neck, I think. It's like it's like when the, in The Simpsons when Mr. Burns is doing the, uh, the untouchables thing with the baseball bat and he's just like... Hit, gently hitting the guy yeah. in the back of the head saying, I'm what giving you, you the beating of your life. <laughs> what are you doing to me? I'm giving you the beating of a lifetime. I, this was the first time I had always uh, thought that Walcott's uh, death was a suicide. For whatever reason, I thought that there was a slight implication that Turner killed him in this one. I know that's yeah, not the I case. Yeah, I was thinking but, that. 
Yeah. That isn't the case. Okay, I was I was wondering that too. If that if there was if it was meant to to imply that maybe it wasn't a suicide. Yeah. No. I mean, because the only thing that I have for that is that his his fall is so violent that it seems like he almost got pushed out or something. Yeah. But also that uh, Turner walks in and sees his body, which I guess is the clue that it's not the case. Because they don't have Turner walk away from his body and leave or something, right. which would imply, imply. Right. I was trying to figure out where he jumped from. Top of, he, top of the barn, I guess. I yeah, the guess, roof. Yeah. yeah. And he, I mean, he looks so he looks so happy in that last scene when he's walking through the wedding, and then, oh yeah, he quasimodo's himself up to the bell tower and just hangs himself. Knows what he has to do. Who's he writing his letter to? Uh, I don't actually know. I'm, I don't not, know. I'm not sure who he's writing. If it's a suicide note or if it's a, because uh, he did not. Size lying about the letter, right? There is no letter from Walcott. Right. And Turner never finds out if there is. Right? No, he never finds out. Yeah. So these walls coming down. They'll be your wall soon. Ever since I was a child in Missouri, I've been down every hole I could find. Boy, the earth talks too. Yeah, I've told you that's what the Indians call me. Yes. Talks to you too, Francis. I know. Our time together, your hearing has stayed keen. But this gambler Tolliver, uh, who was our agent for securing the claims, has spoken to me about you. He says that you've killed women, prostitutes, that he has disposed of the bodies for you. Well! When I was in Campeche, you wrote a letter on my behalf. To the Jefe de Policia. I am aware of Mr. Wolcott's difficulty. You will find me personally grateful for any adjustments you may make in his case. What did you think that was about? I didn't think about it. You were my agent in Mexico. You had many responsibilities. You asked me for the letter and I wrote it. As when the Earth talks to you particularly, you never ask its reasons. I don't need to know why I'm lucky. What if the Earth talks to us to get us to arrange its amusements? Sounds like goddamn nonsense to me. Suppose to you, it whispers, you are king over me, I exist to flesh your will. Nonsense. And to me, there is no sin. The Turner, the guy who plays Turner is apparently a stunt double. For someone in this, oh really? Yeah, so he he was a stuntman who was doing it was for like Dan or something or like a stand-in for Dan or something, hmm. and they they cast that's, him as this. That's funny because I thought he looked familiar, but I guess not. I guess he's just got one of those character actor character actor faces. faces. Yeah, he looks like he looks kind of like a bulky Mister Monopoly or something to me. I he's, thought for a second it was the guy who played Mister Belding on oh, Saved by the Bell no. who got like heavier. As he got older, he did, yeah. But he looks much worse. The Turner looks yeah, like he's, yes. he's well put together. Mister Belding does not look uh, in great shape, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, the wedding happens. Anything? Else? What other? What other scenes happen in this one? We we learn about uh, the blackmail threat. We've got Farnham. The wedding, the wedding scenes. Um, Alma um, struggles through the wedding, but they are officially married at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctor teaches Mo's Tai Chi or something. Yeah, he teaches them to, to breathe in and breathe teaches out. Teaches them those those exercises that they would do for five minutes in boot camp in like World War II. And they're like, all right, 
You're good. Good. <laughs> Off to fight Jerry. This is it's one of the rare episodes that doesn't play, uh, take place the next day. This is a week or two after the previous mm-hmm. episode, which has given Moe's time to get better. I loved the fact that he's still wearing the clothes he was shot in. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I like that so much, but I was like, that's so fucking debasing yes, <laughs> or something. Yeah. I don't know what the word is, but like what if else you're in a situation. Yeah. yeah, I know. I was I mean, I was thinking it's it is realistic in that way, but I was I was thinking like, yeah, I mean being in that situation, getting shot, almost dying, and then the only thing you have to wear are, are your own blood-stained clothes. That's pretty yeah, I wonder if dour. He comes back in the third season. I wonder if he still wears the clothes all the time because he's, he's a pretty metaphorical character in that sense about like mm. the reminder of what's what's happened to him and uh, basically being reborn and given another chance to relive yourself. That's a little bit of his third season arc, but I mean, it's it's he's, he's clearly a better person right away because he hasn't been a a cunt to anybody after he's gunshot. He's, he speaks nicely to people. Uh, the wedding scene, they have the another festivity, like the, the wedding scene is a happy event, kind of like the bicycle ride from earlier in the season. It gives the mm-hmm. whole town an ability to come together. It's again, it's the same thing that they've every, been doing. Every one of these events where everybody comes together, somebody gets killed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it's. I mean, it's as the, the town is, you know, happily working together Hearst is up there again smashing the hotel down mm-hmm. you know there's the uh the metaphor there is not particularly subtle but it does it does work um I did I did like the scene where um at the beginning of the Tolliver and Hearst scene where he's looking at a a hole that seems to be dug right in the middle of the street yeah the mine um, the mine right there yeah is is it is it in the town Yes, that's the, the one of the mines that Tolliver bought for him is just in the street. And yeah, and that's what says, I thought. Yeah, her says that it doesn't have any gold, so they can fill it back in. I I, I like that part because you know he he's not really troubled by it, but uh, immediately Tolliver's like, well, I mean, you you did tell me to buy everything. Yeah, right. so this this is not my fault <laughs> that this doesn't have any gold in it. Three hours at camp, going straight to exploring our vitals. I told him, Mr. Hurst, it's acted for your interest at one or several removes these last couple of months. How do you do? Did you buy me this hole? Off Marvin Soames, sir. Yes, I did. She's out of color, boys. Let's fill her in. I was told to act on all offers. You did well, Mr. Toller. We want to be comprehensive. Hurst- that's the kind of thing that I, 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 I'm talking about that I really like. It's where it's like Tolliver is, is like so shifty and like adjusting and trying to make sure he comes out on top and as far as and he thinks this is a situation where like oh this could fuck me somehow but as far as Hearst is concerned he's like nope this one doesn't have anything on to the next one like yes. he doesn't he doesn't care yeah I, I even like it that Hearst is the one in the hole digging for the gold you know yeah so, like mm-hmm. he, it's not a guy who passes it up to him and he looks at the nugget through like his little monocle or something like that um Although it looked to me like he pulled out a huge chunk of gold and was hitting it with a hammer, <laughs> but what, what do I know? Uh, maybe that, maybe that was the last one. Yeah, maybe he pocketed that one and then he went on his way. <laughs> well, the Earth talked to him, told him there was no more gold right there. Yeah, and, and Sai tries to awkwardly uh, uh, sort of alert him to what's going on there, but Hurst uh, escapes, saying that he's tired and needs to rest. Um. The wedding has gone off without a hitch. The, the, the mm-hmm. ending of the wedding is um, 
a neat callback to Bullock and Alma make eye contact and Swearingen up on his balcony just says, keep fucking walking. And then, <laughs> then Bullock has to walk off. I had to go back and, and put the subtitles on because I couldn't make out what Al said to him as he left when he was looking down. But yeah. I like that because he's he says, go back to your house or something. And then he goes, it's to the it's right. It's to the right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that's um, we talked about this in the last episode. You were wondering if there was closure. This is the closure. They make they make eye contact and Bullock walks away. That's yeah. yeah. I'm still I'm still so fascinated by that. I mean, again, it's it's the difference between this show and the way this show is is done, and the way like I feel most other shows are handled, where it's it's so interesting to me that they have closed this off so relatively quickly because like even. Even, uh, I mean, it was more or less done by the end of the, the beginning of the season. Yep. And they didn't really touch on it that much. Yeah, because uh, Martha was arrives like an, in the first episode of the second yeah, season. Yeah, I mean, I there was, it was an underlying thing for, for Alma, which was really good. But, like, they never really they never really even had scenes together much in the second season, if at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, it, I mean, again, knowing, I'm not saying this is one of those things that they just, like, you know, brushed off, but maybe it is. And it's, it's the one where I feel like I, they probably made the right decision because like how much, you know, I, I'm thinking like the difference between this and a show, just like the traditional, um, like cheers type thing where it's mm-hmm. like, well, these two kind of have a thing. So whenever we need to, we can always go back to the fact that these two are in love with each other, but you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. But here they make the trip, the decision to just, end that and move on the way they do a lot of storylines in the show and sometimes that feels kind of truncated and weird but in this case i think it's it's uh it's good i think it's the right decision yeah yeah i i'm noticing the the truncatedness of it it's it's one of those things i just um i almost maybe unfairly or whatever but i, I almost don't hold it against the show weirdly like i I appreciate the way that it was written and that some of the things just don't pan out very well. Like I, mm-hmm. there are obvious examples I think where it's less uh interesting. There there's going to be an example of that in the third season. The Isernhausen one is this example of the season where it's like that probably wasn't really necessary. Um the Kirsten Bell story is kind of the same, although that one felt like it had at least a little bit of a characterization for like Tolliver and things like and it, it inspires yeah, Joni to leave. Yeah, and it stuff. affects Joni yeah. and, and uh What's his name? Ricky. Ricky. A lot. Right. Yep. Is that his name? Is that the character's name? Ricky. Eddie Sawyer. Sorry. Eddie. Eddie. Yep. Eddie. Ricky Eddie. J. Yeah. Eddie. Um. <laughs> yeah. I. I would just. I want. I want to see a blooper reel or a supercut that's just Powers Booth saying people's names. <laughs> There's probably a supercut on YouTube of his him saying people's names. I, w- I would definitely watch that. Fall asleep to it. Johnny Stubbs. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think I think that uh, you know the Bullock has kind of just grown, you know, for for the best. Like this is a development that's best in, in the best interest of the camp, and that's kind of what Al represents at this point, or is what he's trying to achieve. Um, and him talking to uh, Al or Seth from the balcony, just saying like to move on with your life, and they both do, is mm. a nice thing. But it's um, the other thing that everything sort of ties back around to is the, the other thing that I really enjoy, is, uh, enjoy from the show is this idea of like lies agreed upon and sort of the um, the sort of the cultural like institutions and agreements that we come to that are not necessarily 
honest in what they are. Like the, the marriage is the big example here where Alma and uh, Ellsworth's marriage is kind of that lie agreed upon, which is that it's not yeah. a, it's not something based in love or anything. There's like a utility to it. Um, well, the thing that's interesting there too is that it's, it's a very similar kind of setup to Seth's marriage. Yes. But Seth's marriage seems to be, seems to be building going over the, yeah, yeah, going over the hump towards something more. They're at um, least friendly real. at this point. Yeah. 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 They hold hands in their uh, morning scene. Uh, that That is a hell of a thing. It was that morning back then you just sat and stared at the wall all day for a I couple guess. weeks. That's. I mean, if that's what morning is, that's what I do most of my yeah, day. <laughs> yeah, that's um, that is it is a a sad curtains drawn just looking at the back of the curtain. It would be, it would be great if you know she sat down next to him and had that whole speech, and then he's like, "I'm sorry, I was on Instagram." What did you say? <laughs> no, he's, he's he's playing Candy Crush on his phone. It's just a cutaway <laughs> to him getting a, a new high score. Um, yep, yeah, and the the thing of. Uh, Yankton, those relationships. I, I agree with like the Martha and Bullock. The, all most of the marriages in this one are a little bit skewed. Really, there's a um, a sense going on that the the marriage is, you know, that that lie agreed upon thing, which is that none of them are completely on task. Because Alma has that over uh, overdub sequence where she's talking to Brom, like she has the narrative uh, mm. the. Um, voiceover where she's talking to Brahma about why she's staying. Uh, so I, I think that all she the marriages never, are portrayed is that way. And she, but she never gets to the like. It's the kind of it's the same kind of thing that Charlie says to Bill at Bill's grave, but she never makes it to the cemetery. No, she just sees it from a distance and walks away. Yeah. <laughs> she, she sees it and she's like, ah, it's close enough. <laughs> He's ah, well, it doesn't really make a difference. He's not going to hear it either way. No, she doesn't really love him. She's just Give him a wave. She, the only one, the only one that he can talk to, I guess. But uh, she's in the camp up. with Whitney Ellsworth, who's a good man, and she's also mm-hmm. with the one she loves, as she says. The uh, the other one, the other relationship that that is has a nice bookend is uh, the season starts with Seth and Al beating the shit out of each other and it ends with them shaking hands. Yes. Yep. Bullock drinking in the gym, uh, which he yes. doesn't particularly do all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I liked uh, Bullock shakes hands with Jerry and then immediately wipes his hand because Jerry's obviously oh, very, yeah, very nervous. about. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else here about that? Or should we just talk about the, if you have any other thoughts, otherwise we can just talk about the season as a whole before we wrap it up, sure. I guess. Um, did you have anything else or is that it? For notes. Oh, uh, the uh, the attack sequence was interesting when they put on those weird masks. Yes, yeah. The foreshadowing last episode where he's like, "Can you guys fight in those Chinese dresses that they wear?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those those. Uh, I want to know where those masks came from. Were they special made? Is it just something that Wu had? <laughs> it's the most realistic Chinese face mask that's ever. Right. <laughs> It's just a, a mesh strainer with a like wispy mustache that yeah. you, you hang off of it. I was um you know To the, be fair, it's like only a step down from how they portrayed Asian people in the movies for the first like seventy years of Hollywood. I was so. gonna say in the dark shot with a sort of action camera, it doesn't actually look that bad. You know, like they <laughs> yeah. they they just look like they are uh, in with the crowd of the other uh Chinese laborers who are in there if the camera moves fast enough and you don't actually look at them. Um, 
Dan Doherty says, don't you clap at me. Don't clap orders at me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they t- take out Lee's uh, gang um, because Wu now has the backing of Hearst and they're able to do that. So I like um, Hearst has a very Lucille Blue theory. He's like, oh, it's unusual. You can tell how old an Asian is. But look at this guy. He's old. <laughs> uh, season two. What'd you think of season two compared to season one? It's good. Um, I think so. A friend of mine years ago, when I started watching this, uh, I said I was going to start watching, and he said, first season's great, the second season and third season suck." Yep. And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, it kind it kind of like killed my buzz for for watching the rest of the show because you know, it, it, he said it wasn't very good." Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing is. It's not that season two is bad because it's not. I think it's very good, but it is just so um, tonally different than the first season because the first season has so much of that classic Western stuff in it. Yeah. And like the whole point of the second season is that they are trying to evolve past that. And so you start your season with a knockdown drag out fist fight in the street and it ends with document signing basically you yeah. know it's it's uh so business if, if transactions really yeah. yeah yeah so if you are expecting the same kind of energy and and violence that you get in season one yeah i can definitely see why you'd be disappointed by it but what they're doing is is a really it's rare i think that you get a show that is about i mean the show's called deadwood right so like ostensibly the main character of the show is the 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 city there's the town yep and it's rare that you get a show like that where the character arc that you are seeing is that of the town right you know they always say well you know gotham city's like its own character so yeah whatever You, you you never see grand changes made to gotham city right architecturally it represents things yeah but i wouldn't say right, that yes. yeah 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 but here you're actually getting like it is a character in the show in that you are watching an arc of this character known as deadwood you know it's not like they're doing this on cougar town you know cougar right. town i mean maybe they did i didn't watch cougar town maybe it's a brilliantly written <laughs> character study of, of cougar town but um but, you know, and I think that's really impressive because I, I don't think that's very easy to do. And I don't think it's something. Do you think this show would have played on uh, broadcast TV? Like if this was a show that was on like CBS or something, do you think people would have watched like like this? No. I mean, besides the obvious thing that like it would be. Sort of totally different, just from content standpoint. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm taking away the the limitations of yeah that kind of stuff. Just like the the kind of show that it is, the way that it's structured, the way things played out. Do you think it's something that only works on HBO at that time? Like, I feel like now you might be able to get away with something like this on more traditional channels, but I I don't think in 2002 or whatever this was, I don't think. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think FX really existed yet. I don't think no. you could have done this on on Fox or something. You know? Right. No, I I don't, but largely because I think that if you take away the HBO like adult content aspect of it, the show loses quite a bit at that point. Sure. Like it doesn't sure. really. Um, 
it's not that the swears are everything, but there's like the the language is evocative of what the town is doing, right? So it's like it's this developmental thing where like the language of the characters displays how the characters are um, like their station in life. Like Merrick never curses, interestingly. Like the right. educated people are rarely cursing, but the people who are the laborers and the sort of like down in the dirt type people or like the um, the sort of the Swearingen characters use it almost like constantly. So it's right. the... I think if you took it and you put it on CBS, like losing the language and stuff like that would take away a tremendous amount because as we've talked about, if they took it to CBS, all you really have at that point is kind of the plot and the plot mm-hmm. here is not the point in a lot of ways beyond the sort of like broad strokes of where things are going. The individual threads are kind of like the characters and that they all need to combine with each other. And I think on a CBS thing, if you don't have the language and you don't have the ability to get into the topics that they're talking about here, like the prostitution and the drugs and the murders and stuff like that. It's just, it it doesn't, you're not going to have anything by the end of it. I don't think even if you adapted it and made it something more CBS friendly, I feel like it loses something there. Well, I guess, I mean, like say that wasn't an issue. And so you could, you could just present the show as, as whatever the uh, CBS equivalent of that, that retains all of these things you're talking about. Right. I think it's do still think, so, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was just. Do you think it is 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 the kind of show that would have an a big audience? Because I I kind of don't think it would. No, I don't think. Well, I, I guess my my question to you would it be critically acclaimed if this show mm. was not on HBO? Uh, I think it's possible. Okay. Because um, I mean, you know, you think about something weird like Twin Peaks, right? Yep. Twin Peaks was a very unique show for the time that was pretty highly critically acclaimed, and it also had a, a huge fan base too. But I think the, you know that was driven so much by the um, the uh, mystery aspect of it that this doesn't have. I guess my I guess my thought process about asking that question is like. I don't I think once you get to season two, you don't have the same kind of driver that season one does yep in a, in a traditional sense so it's like you know it's like if uh, I'm trying to use a Star Trek analogy but I, I think all of the suggestions I'm gonna make would be like no that would actually be better because <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> I was gonna say it's like if Star Trek Discovery the second season of Star Trek Discovery was like, just diplomacy stuff and i was like no that would be better <laughs> than the first <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's like that kind of thing where it's like all right okay cool western show yep. gunfights blah 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 and then second see a second season rolls around and it's like drawing room parlor stuff mm. and uh uh yankton and the pinkertons <laughs> and kind of dense dialogue what, stuff. It's what, like, what okay. is that Saul says he's like he's like jones from butte <laughs> talking yeah. about that guy and just like what the fuck yeah like i i it's uh it's the kind of show that that rewards paying attention and i don't think it's the kind of show that would that would play very well if you if you didn't have that sort of hbo thing behind it where the the hbo-ness of it is i think it still does uh despite their attempts to destroy this but i i think the hbo name still carries it carries weight to tell you what kind of show you're in for yeah right? certainly at this time of this show as yes. well. yeah yeah 
Um, you know, <laughs> if this was a Max original, I don't know if people yeah, would right. go for it. But yeah, nothing worse than these Max originals that I'm like, oh, this must have been on HBO, and it's like, oh no, this was definitely not on HBO. This is uh, yeah, yeah, true crime, true crime churned out by an AI, I think. Yeah, but it's it's that kind of thing where it's like I feel like it's it is it requires a different kind of and I don't mean this to sound like pretentious or anything but it just it requires a different kind of attention to be paid to it yeah um I don't which think I mean, the show I, would have been a hit on broadcast yeah, television I don't think so no yeah. I mean well it's not it feels like was it a hit on no, HBO not not at HBO either really yeah because I because I think is a uh, the third season is like short right no, it's twelve. It's a full. Oh, it full is. Season. Oh, for yeah. some reason, I thought it got canceled like halfway through the season. No, it's a full season. Yeah, H- this was the era H- HBO would finish their things. Like you know, they they would still had that mindset of like the creators will finish. Yeah, things. <laughs> that was when they were like every every show that we do, we are committed ratings regardless yes. to to. F- at least five seasons and then it's like well <laughs> did we say five we meant three yeah it's a it's a kind of a squiggle on that five it's actually a three it's just the ink yeah. smudged again i bring up carnival which i think yeah. we talked about before that you did you, you didn't remember i've that never one, seen right? no I, i've seen maybe an episode or two i think the kids th- in college liked it but i never watched the yeah whole i think that was one where it was like we here at hbo commit to our projects and then after two seasons of that we're like we didn't say every project. <laughs> this one is very expensive, so we're not going to do any more of this show. We aren't allowing the creator to speak, but he's agreed that two seasons is the right amount for this show, and we will get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, – I don't think this would have been a hit on CBS, and I'm, I'm trying to avoid – it's not just the swearing and the cursing and stuff like that, but there's like the – the adult content-esque nature of it is sort of vital to what the show is talking about, too. Like, I think if you if you PG the content of Deadwood on HBO, I think it would be a ridiculously boring CBS show, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. the, the problem there is that it's not just all about, like, the tits and ass and the swearing of it that makes it a great show, but the dialogue, this dialogue talking, like... What what would be a good a good storyline? Like there there could not be a reality of the prostitutes in the in the CBS show, right? Like they would mm-hmm. just be a choir of like Greek, you know, the Greek chorus or something. Like the CBS show would just have incredibly well put together women who are just sort of pretending to be prostitutes, but you never actually see them do anything. They're just kind of in the background of of stuff. Sure, I just I. I think that the grittiness of what HBO allows is very important to it. And I don't know, even with like the Milchian dialogue and the plots and the exact same themes, I don't know if it really works on a broadcast network at all. Um, I'm not sure. I just, I don't think it would be anything that would be gripping or um, fun, really. Yeah. You know, I would be curious to know. I know this is not a one to one, but if anybody, if any of our listeners are fans of Justified, yeah. I'd be curious to see how how they would compare Justified to Deadwood, and I only say that because Timothy Oliphant is the main character. Where's the cowboy I, hat? Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> I remember I, people love Justified, and I yeah I watched like the first two episodes, and I was like, this ain't it. Like this is it just was not working for me. I think because I had been watching Deadwood, yeah, and I was like, oh shit, yeah, Timothy, absolutely, I'm in, and then. 
it's presents itself as this like modern Western. And then some, at some point in the first episode, someone blows up a convenience store with a rocket launcher. Yes. And I was like, yeah. all right, maybe this isn't, well, that's isn't what, for me, but that's what you have to do when you're not allowed to use the full extent of language and character interactions like you are in this show, right? Like they, yeah. and justified, they can't actually talk about anything interesting because it's like, it's kind of, you're either playing it for a broader audience or the content can't be PG ified for it so you end up mm-hmm. with shit like a rocket launcher gets shot into a, an office building or something but yeah. and that's no that's no strike against justified no it's I just a different kind of show yeah as much as the next <laughs> right depending on what next, you're hitting uh, with it <laughs> i like a rocket launcher as much as the next insurgent but <laughs> not in this show but as you were saying season two of this That'd show be a twist season two of this show is just I'll remember season two for season two in comparison to season one feels to me like a lot of conversations by candlelight at night is how yes. I would describe season two in a way yeah. that season one felt like it was a lot of fisticuffs in broad daylight outside. Yeah. Uh, and that's the difference between the two of them, I think. What if what if in season three they knew that ratings were flailing? And so halfway through season three, Hearst goes to his mine and discovers inside the mine is Amelia Earhart <laughs> and some some other some other cocksucker? <laughs> yeah, whoever whoever else was in here in there with her in that Voyager episode. We we watched that Star Trek episode. We should know, but mm-hmm. we don't. We can't remember. We can't remember Voyager episodes from two weeks ago. Uh, which I don't. I don't want. Like? I don't want people to think I'm coming down unjustified. But just because I know people love that show, and I I would. I'm sure it's fine. I would, for what it is. Yeah, I would give it a shot. Um, I know I, I actually worked with a couple people who worked on Justified. Mm-hmm. Uh, very nice people. Mm-hmm. Good, great writers. Um, so yeah, that's just me f- trying to save face. Uh, <laughs> for insulting from, Justified. For, for, for in a career standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lot sure of great ju- people working on that show. I'd love to work with all of them. Justified is an FX show. It, it, was, it, it is. Yeah. yeah it's, it it's, is, yeah. I mean, that's. That's what it is. Sons of Anarchy was an FX show. I, I think Justified is better than Sons of Anarchy. I'll say that much. Yeah, I, um, I have man. I think the FX shows, in retrospect, will be really interesting to dip back into, because like, do you think they'll uh, have lasting just, power? Well, to dip I was going to say, yeah. I was going to say, Justified aside, because I hear it's great. Yeah, it's great. Uh, <laughs> right, right, that really like, guy, terrific. Yeah, I feel like the I feel like the FX shows are trying too hard to do what shows like Deadwood do very naturally. And so you end up with this weird over the top element that just feels phony. Yeah. Like I yeah. felt the same way about The Shield. I tried to watch The Shield and it just got to a point where it was like it was it was like watching a sh- a cop show written by teenagers who just found out that they could swear. And it was like this is not the same to me as as something like Deadwood, where it's it just feels more considered. You know, it yes. just feels like yeah. it feels like shock value for the sake of shock value. Yeah, yeah. It's um even their comedies, I feel kind of that way. Like I don't know if I I I watched a couple of the FX comedies as they were on, and I just don't know if they're shows that I would ever re- return to or stick with. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go to bad. bad for it's always sunny in Philadelphia. That yeah, it's always sunny. But, I, I never got into it. There was some some other one that was uh, on for a while that was like uh, I'm not going to be able to remember it, but it had a bunch of couples in it. Uh, I can't remember, but it got 
uh, it had it was widely praised for I don't think it still exists but um anyway for this one would you rather would you, did you prefer season 1 or season 2 um season 2 has higher critical ratings on yeah. reviews I don't know I think it's very difficult to to compare them cuz they are so different what was your what was the big improvement in season two? Uh, if you didn't prefer season two, what's what's one thing you would point I, at and say the show did this better? I would say season one is a is a smoother watch. Yeah, because it has those high high moments of of action and and more uh, visceral stuff. Not that this one doesn't, but it's just not presented in the same kind of way. Uh, Do, most improved season oh, one feels we, a little bit more cohesive to me. As a yeah. as a way through it, like, I, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. like because we talked about this one has so many dangling plot threads. Yes, that just kind of come and go. Um, was the the Kristen Bell thing was season two, right? No, that's season one. Oh, that's season one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the most improved. Uh, that's a good question. I think. I think season two uses the ensemble a bit better than season one does. Yeah. Because um, they're focusing so much on establishing the big players. And season two uh, lets them, you know, everything's kind of, the the four corners of the tent have been nailed down, and now they can let the elephants in. Yeah. I, I, I think that the, the elephant's Boy. ass is going to... My, my carnival is getting into my brain here. <laughs> It was, I think, uh, I think that the, obviously it's a, something that a lot of shows do, but the, um, the character interactions feel a little bit more comfortable. There's a scene in yeah. this one I really love. I love, um, it's pointless, but it's, um, Tom Nuttall when he comes into the gym and he talks to Al about selling. I love that scene between the two of them. Mm. They have the, um, yeah. it ends with the, like you, we talked before that Al doesn't really have any friends. I think Tom Nuttall kind of qualifies to a friend for Al. Al seems to like him quite a bit. Yeah. Mm. And um, just the way that it ends with it, like Tom is like, so did you ever think Ellsworth and uh, Alma would get together? And Al just says like, sometimes true love just finds each other. And they both laugh about <laughs> it. Um, but I, I did also really like Al kind of watching what's going on from the balcony. Yeah. Uh, and talking about how he was invited, but he was he would never yeah. fucking go because like uh, part of me thinks he wants to go. You know, he has yes. to keep up yep. this front of of aloofness. But I think, you know, much like the the funeral episode where he's kind of like you know hanging over the balcony trying to see what's going on. I think there's a part of him that does want to go. Yes, yeah, he does feel even lonely. if he did kill her husband. Yeah, and I, I guess that the the. The point for Al at this point is to determine where he, where he sits on the line of like altruistic for the town stuff and selfish desire, um, mm. and he, he he continues to balance uh, between the two of them. Um, anything else about season two here? Uh, no, I I like season. I remember I remembered as I've mentioned before. I did not like the first half of season two. That was my memory coming into it, and mm-hmm. I think I was wrong about that. I think it's good. It's it is as you're saying. It's just it's a different pace and a different thing that they're doing, uh, where it's introducing Walcott. It's sort of building up towards this unnamed Hearst threat that's looming in the background. Uh, the politicking on your first time through is kind of difficult to understand what the fuck anyone is talking about with a lot of the politics stuff. Um, once you get familiar with it, you realize that it's not all, it's not really all that complicated, but it, it feels complicated in the way that they're talking about things. But 
I think um, a lot of the great lines of dialogue come from season two. Um, you know, on a CBS show, you couldn't have those who doubt me suck cock by choice. That would not quite have the, <laughs> the same ring to it the, if it was coming out of Kevin. Uh, the fuck is that fat comedian's name? Kevin, Kevin James. Kevin James. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I like I like season two. I remember going into season three thinking that season three was better than season two. But oh, ha- having read a lot of reviews, I'm prepared to adjust myself, and I can see why that's the case. But I love Hearst so much that it's hard to... Um, that's what the name of the show would be on CBS. Yes. <laughs> you, the big role for uh, Gerald McRaney, who plays Hearst, is he's Major Dad from that Oh, sitcom. I was going to say, I thought that was Major Dad. Yeah, yeah. that's Major Dad. So uh, it was a surprise casting, but we, we will see if he gets into his sitcom roles. I always get him mixed up with Dabney Coleman, who has a very similar look. Similar face, yeah. Yeah, yeah bald with a big mustache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll see about season three. But you haven't seen any of season three, so it'll all be new I have to not. You. So we're yeah. looking forward to it. So that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is Boy the Earth Talks To, which is our final episode of the second season of Deadwood. We're just going to roll right into the next episode. Um with the third season so you guys can get ready for that we're not going to take a break or anything we'll just keep going no and finish it off it's tell your god to ready for blood is the next episode it's a good title if you guys have enjoyed the content and you enjoyed slayer album (laughs) (laughs) what do you think um is raining blood a good song i what what's the criteria for (laughs) i don't know i'm i'm Every time it's I fantastic title. It is every time I listen to Raining Blood. Maybe that's the thing about it. Is it always it always feels like it's right about to fall apart on itself, and yeah. maybe that's the intent of it. But um, rain. I mean, the lyrics "Raining Blood from a Lacerated Sky." Fucking great. <laughs> it is super metal. I have nothing against <clears throat> them uh, at all, but I, I always wonder. That's their 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 song, uh, their famous song, obviously. But I I don't know if it's uh, if it would make me dive further into the Slayer, the Slayer I'm, discography. Yeah, they're it's all it's all kind of the same shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I find them to be one of those bands that's so fascinating. I think Pantera is another one where it's like two years before that they were just hair sprayed up, yeah, glam metal guys, and then all of a sudden it was like, okay, we gotta pivot a bit here you gotta make that texas swamp groove metal or whatever they called yeah. it yeah that's you, always, you ever like do you like pantera i never got into pantera um i love the sound of pantera i think that mm-hmm. they they sound <laughs> i've never listened to the music but i i appreciate the fact that they're making it <laughs> they um i their production wise they said like i think that their drum sound is really great for mm-hmm. metal of that era um I I wouldn't say I'm crazy about Pantera. I remember always being scared of Pantera when I was growing up. I thought they were a very <laughs> scary band, but I think they're I think they're reasonable. Like they're they're a pretty decent '90s band. Um, when all, when all is said and done, yeah, this love yeah, is a great song. It always uh, the, that change always reminds me of um, the other one, the other great one is uh, Dr. Dre before he was in NWA. Yes. Was, uh, was the, the name he got the name Dr. Dre because he dressed like a doctor on stage? Yes. Yeah, it's like a stethoscope. <laughs> well, yeah, while he was doing like you know, your your mom can't cook rap, you know. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Dr. Dre. 
It's it's the uh, the when you um, Pantera learning the Pantera was a hair metal band is when you learn that everything after like 1992 was ghost written for Dr. Dre and he wasn't even writing his own raps. It's just other oh, people really? writing for him. I, guess yeah. I never thought about it, but yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. He's got he's a busy man. He's got things to do. The other one, uh, another one of my favorites, Ronnie James Dio, originally a doo-wop singer. Sure. You go back, you can find some of his early stuff uh, where I think his name was like Ronnie Dio or something. I don't know. I can't, it was something like that where he's doing he's doing like Four Seasons type stuff. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah. I always wonder like when the switch came. When did, when did Ronnie James Dio put down the hair gel and pick up the sword? You know what I mean? Right. And how do you feel so confident? switching like that you know right yeah i would have no confidence it's all that's the michael bolton did it the other way he went from a metal guy into kind of a easy listening kind yeah of easy listening well that makes sense because you age that way right yeah. like that that's the, the way the of getting older but the other way is the other way is a choice Anyway, support the show at patreon.com slash thepenskyfell if you guys have caught up or you're just listening for the first time. And maybe the podcast has even ended at this point because Clay has died or something. <laughs> but we maybe finished. the world has ended. <laughs> maybe the world. Maybe, <laughs> well, they, maybe they'd have a hard time found, Maybe you found a, an iPod that still has juice. <laughs> and this episode is this queued is up last, on it. The last thing that was on it. Well, hopefully you Patreon know, still exists. I think it will. Okay, if, if, if the world gets wiped out by nuclear holocaust i think <laughs> patreon will still stand i always wonder we are far enough removed now that there's at least one generation of people who actively listen to podcasts that probably have no idea where the name comes from yeah because yes. it was originally linked to the ipod ipod yeah yeah, yeah. we're, we're and, past the ipod existing at all interestingly right enough. yeah and i i i'm very curious if how many of the modern era of of podcast listeners? There might even pe- be people who are like our age, yep. who are big into podcasts that don't realize that's where the name comes from. Well, it's one of these things too. Like we've had this conversation on the Discord where I'm fairly strict about what I call a podcast, and apparently mm. other people are not. Like YouTube is now said to be the number one destination for podcasts, right? And people mm. will say, "Here's a here's a podcast." And it's a video of two people having a conversation, right? Right. To to me, I'm I'm pretty anal about this. Like the podcast has to be an it has to be an audio file that's delivered through like an RSS feed to your device. Basically, like you, right. it's not just yeah. a conversation. It's not like radio shows where two people had a conversation were not podcasts, you know, in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So I'm maybe I'm I'm I'm. Uh, Climbing well, a hill what is, that doesn't need to do. I don't know. What, what are we doing right now but a radio show where two people just have a conversation? But we're delivering it through the internet on an uh, RSS. Right. View. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, so two people <clears throat> having a conversation that's recorded is not a podcast to me, you know, because we've been right. doing that since the dawn of time. It's the mechanism for right. releasing it that makes it a podcast. Yeah. I just find it fascinating that like by, podcasts had existed for a number of years before anybody gave a yeah, shit. Yeah, just tech, like, tech by, nerds sharing audio files with Yeah, each other, by yeah. the time people cared, I think the pod, the iPod was mostly obsolete at that point. I mean, like, it's start- only been, let's say, like, yeah, we've been doing this for what, like eight years? Yeah, I, we started when podcasts were still kind of novel, you know? Yeah. The, the Trek show started. Starting to pick up. They were yeah. starting to pick up, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we say that and there were 
even at that point, there were people who had been like, we've been doing a Star Trek podcast for yes, Star seven Trek years. Yes, Star Trek still existed. But uh, when we started the, the po- Trek podcast, there was still a large chance that some people would be unfamiliar with what a podcast is at that point. Like that was, yeah. it was a relatively new thing. Yeah. I think with everything, it just got easier to do. Yes. You know, yeah. like there's, it, there, there's just so... To the downside of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> now, w- the thing we take so seriously has become a joke. Anyone of can, course anyone you have a podcast. Yeah. Of course it's about Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Would you like another politics podcast? But, uh, but how many how many listeners on Patreon do you have? Let's oh, talk well, about the me. deficit, Wes. Let's, you know... I'll just do a daily daily diary podcast and I'll talk about how the other podcasts are going and let people know. <laughs> that would be that would be you know you've either made it or we need to shut the whole thing down yeah. when it's like we have a podcast <laughs> that comes out once a week that's like an once aggregate. A day. Yeah, an, an, an aggregate, aggregate of, of all of our podcasts that we put out. It's me uh, reading off numbers from the podcast site because I won't do a video podcast for it. I'll just read the numbers <laughs> off of the, the site and record myself. All right. I guess we're done with Deadwood. Thanks, everybody. We're not done with Deadwood. We're done with the second season. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Patreon.com slash the Penske file if you want to support the show. That's the best way to do it. If you have, if the show has ended, all that stuff, Patreon still exists. You can go there and support the show and then just unsubscribe. You know, if you've enjoyed this so far, we've given you 24 episodes of Deadwood Goodness. Clay, do you have anything you want to say before we get out of here? Check out the Rotten Horror Picture Show where Amanda and I talk about horror movies. Uh, This month on Patreon, well, this year we're doing Video Nasties. Um, And this month, this being July, we did Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, which has the alternate title, Twitch of the Death Nerve, which is one of the best titles I've ever heard. I don't know Hmm. why they didn't use that everywhere. Um. And also Bat the Badass Podcast for myself and Sean Murphy talk about Batman the Animated Series. We're just about done with season two of Batman Beyond. We did a Patreon episode talking about The Flash. And if you happen to be in a comic book store at this point while you're listening to this, I have a comic out right now called Batman White Knight Presents Generation Joker, which should be the third issue should be out right now. Uh, so, yeah, pick it up. Be much obliged. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with the first episode of the third season of Deadwood. It's called Tell Your God to Ready for Blood. See you next week. May I say to you that the week since our meeting has seen me conduct with Yankton an active telegraphic correspondence, which on every count has ameliorated the terms of the proposal before you in favor of the Deadwood camp. You smell like cat piss. I have worked so hard and diligently for you, Mr. Swearingen, that well may be the case. Regardless of the outcome, I am proud of that advocacy. Having said that, you liable to say more? Let the document now speak for itself. The letters may get larger. The numbers will not. (laughs) Forgive me. Long hours, giddy at the smell of the barn. Stoic composure. The next sound you hear will be that of your own voice. Get the fuck out of here. You'll know when I've come to an answer. I must tell you, I require a response within the hour. Or as soon as humanly possible.